the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the podcast, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And we are thrilled that you are listening in today. A couple things to say as we get started. First of all, thanks so much to Rebecca Terhune for help with marketing media, to Ed Hackey for uh, producing the show, and to James Steinbach for help with the website and uh, web, the hosting of the podcast. We're, we have a really fantastic team. Other people are also um, helping us out uh, for some projects we have going on that will be forthcoming. Can't say too much about them yet. Also, if you want to support the podcast uh, financially, you go to onscript.study forward slash donate. Um, we'd appreciate your help as we try to expand our offerings, so to speak. Um, another way to expand our, our offerings or to expand the podcast is to is for Onscript to get to number one on iTunes. And um, so, you know, you have like This American Life up there and you know, a few other podcasts and, and we'd like to, to beat all of them, you know, get to, get to the top. And so I was thinking about how to get there and, you know, with COVID people aren't going to, we can't say like go to a soccer game and share with everyone. Cause you're not going to soccer games or, you know, baseball game. Um, people aren't filling the stands. So we have to, we have to go to more traditional means. Um, and, and I was thinking if every person that listens to the podcast shared with one person, and then that person shared with someone else. So you have to tell them, like, you have to tell the next person to share it. Um, and and then if, like, 300,000 people did that, if of those 300,000, um, let's say 10% give a ratings on iTunes, that would be 30,000 ratings, which, and, and let's say that 30,000 ratings gets you to number one, we would be there. So... So that's what we're hoping to um, to do this week. You know, we want to get there uh, this week. So if you could do that, that would be great. So everyone tell one person, um, because that's how exponential growth happens. All right, we have a very special uh, episode today. Um, our guest has a really interesting story and scholarship, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, enjoy. Thanks, OnScript listeners, for joining us. This is Matthew Bates, your co-host for this episode. Here's a quote for you to ponder. After two millennia, few people read Romans with Eastern eyes. Even in Asia, Christians largely interpret Paul's letter from a Western perspective. So says biblical scholar and theologian Jackson W. in his Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes. Thanks for joining us, Jackson. Thank you. Now, Jackson, uh, going back to that quote... After two millennia, a few people read Romans with Eastern eyes, and even in Asia, they don't do this. Um, why does this happen? Why even in Asia are people not reading with Eastern eyes? Well, it's a funny irony that because East Asians have an honor-shame perspective, they honor tradition, they honor authority, and so what ends up happening is they look at Western theology, the Western church, and they say, well, you guys are the ones that are the authorities. This is tradition. And so we want to honor that. And so countless pastors and 
theologians I've met say, well, we can't break with that tradition. So ironically, it's the honor-shame culture that uh, keeps them from a fully orbed and robust honor-shame theology. So what's lost for the universal church? And uh, obviously, like we, it's pretty obvious that the Western church might be losing something, right, if we're not aware of Eastern perspectives. But what's lost for the Asian church, too, if we're all uh, reading uh, Romans with uh, Western rather than Eastern eyes? Well, first, I'd say all cultures are honoring cultures to some degree. So we're all losing stuff. Um, and I think in some degree, we're, we're losing part of the Bible's message on the one hand. And then with that comes the various applications that come from it, whether it relate to, you know, counseling or whether it relate to social dynamics or a group identity uh, issues. I mean, that's a hot topic nowadays. And so much of our theology doesn't speak to things of collective identity and group identity. But uh, I think that's one of the big things we do get back. Yeah, that's... Um... I think thoughtful for us, especially in our individualistic Western culture, right? That we we have no sense of um, maybe the collective message sometimes of these texts. And your own context is uh, particularly sensitive to it in in terms of cross-cultural mission work that you've been involved in. Uh, Let me introduce uh, my guest a little bit uh, more thoroughly. Uh, Jackson W. also writes under the pseudonym Jackson Wu. Uh, He's the theologian in residence for Mission One. Recently relocated to Arizona, he's lived in East Asia since 2003, where he first served as a church planner before starting a seminary for Chinese house church leaders. He holds an MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and a PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a member of the Asian-slash-Asian-American Theology Steering Committee with the ETS, and he serves as the book review editor for Themelios' Mission and Culture section. His books include Saving God's Face, One Gospel for All Nations, and meanwhile, I'd like to point out the book under discussion today, Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, uh, has also won a huge honor, uh, the Merit Award from Christianity Today in the Biblical Studies category. So I'm not the only one that thinks Jackson's book is absolutely terrific. Now, Jackson, you have a uniquely interesting biography uh, in fact, the nature of your mission work in China is sensitive enough that you've opted to write under a pen name, Jackson W. or Jackson Wu, which is not your real name. And uh, I'm probably not the only person dying to hear more about um, your, your biography and about um, your context. Um, can you tell us as much uh, about that as the nature of your work, uh, uh, about the nature of your work as you're, you're comfortable sharing in this sort of uh, public setting? Sure, absolutely. One of the greatest needs uh, in China and, and among Chinese church is theological training, theolo- theological education. It's just the church has grown so large, but because of the lack of training, you find cults spurring up everywhere. You find churches really struggling to know how to apply the Bible. And so a group of us decided that we wanted to start an accredited uh, seminary for the underground church. Now, the logistics of that uh, <laughs> were quite challenging and every gray hair I have has come from that process. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but you know, cause you just can't have a bricks and mortar school in a, in a place, you know, like China. And so that required a lot of logistics. I won't quite go into all here, but, uh, but we wanted something that was quality controlled. You know, that's why we wanted the accredited aspect and not to mention 
it gives uh, the credibility for uh, people outside of China and inside China. Well, that's a that's amazing. And um, can you speak a little bit more about for those who aren't familiar? And I'm not deeply familiar myself with um, the official situation. Now I know there's an officially sanctioned Chinese church, and you know that much. Uh, but there's also obviously an, an enormous underground church presence. Um, yeah, can you just delve into that a little more? Sure. And this is actually. Uh, uh, something that the Chinese government is taking more and more seriously is to press the prominence of the above-ground church, which is called the Three Self Church. Uh, they are there is that side, but there's also the underground church, which which they translate as family church, and uh, that's the unregistered church. And the government is trying to squeeze that out of existence more and more aggressively. Uh, and they don't care so much about religion per se as they do about politics. And so that's what they're against, is they don't want groups meeting together of, of any size that could possibly create some kind of resistance. In the above-ground church, you do have some healthy uh, pastors and leaders in there, but for the most part, it's ran by the communist government. So you're going to have people who really, they're just, it's about, it's about promoting Chinese culture and doing social work and so forth and so on. Uh, so so th- right now, that's a, a big propaganda tool for the co- Chinese government. Yeah, uh, one question that I have in light of that, you know, as we talk about Western um, and Eastern differences, is sort of Western theologies in the process of recovering, uh, I think it's fair to say, a more robust political dimension of the gospel. Uh, does that, uh, you know, uh, whenever we're proclaiming, you know, Jesus is king, uh, uh, that's that's more overtly political than saying, like, if the center of gravity is around Jesus as Savior, um, is that is that difference um, something that's being um, felt and increasing the pressure that's on these house churches, or is that um, are we too far away from those kind of shifts really taking cultural root in China? Well, there's a philosophical divide in the church in terms of what being political or socially active looks like. And you see an uneven balance to that. A few years ago, you had people insisting on keeping crosses on their church to the point that people were tearing down church buildings because they thought, well, maybe that's compromising the gospel by letting, by taking down our crosses. Uh, others have spoken more directly to the corruption. So there's an uneven balance. But I will say it makes a huge difference the nature of the gospel message preached. Uh, whereas a lot of people say in the West will say, well, we don't have kings. We don't really understand this whole business about Jesus King. Uh, if, if I say, if I, you know, kind of contextualize and I say, Jesus is chairman, you know, like chairman of the party. Oh my, they know exactly what that means. They know the implications. There's no question. Whereas if you present a standard, this is how you get saved kind of idea, uh, they see it as just kind of just some other religious notion like anything else that they, they most often ask, well, what does that have to do with me? Uh, so when you get back to that royal gospel that's in the Bible, all of a sudden, all just a single statement like that, the flood of applications and relevance comes back for people quite, quite quickly. Yeah. Um, uh, well, thanks for clarifying that. Now, I've, I've just been following to the very small degree I can um, something that's been a, a news story, at least that's re- re- reached Western ears, uh, at least my ears that aren't really even close to the ground, is uh, Pastor uh, Wang Yi, who was pastor of this early reign covenant church in China. He, he penned this manifesto, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience, uh, just prior to his arrest by government authorities. Um, and... Um, 
So is is that is that a, a, a symptom of the like? Is this part of like? Was he part of the house church culture that's getting increasingly um, repressed by the government at this point in time, or was he more an above ground public figure that was deliberately being provocative? Um, I, I don't know how much you're familiar with his specific situation, and if you want to speak to that anymore. Yes, he's a part of the what would be considered uh, more the house church, unregistered church movement. He wouldn't be like part of the three self church, because the, the, the way it works in reality is that not all of the unregistered house churches or whatnot. Uh, now, technically, he might be registered, but he's not a part of the three self church, so I, don't, I can't remember the detail, but. Um, the way the way it works is once a house church or family church gets large enough, everybody knows they exist. In fact, the official will come to them during certain times of the year and say, "Hey, an official's coming to meet this, come to the city. You guys need to break down into small groups until they leave." And they, because the local authorities don't care, frequent or and historically haven't cared, uh, they just don't want you to do anything that's going to embarrass them. And so he's he was quite a public figure. Um, even though he was part of the house church. And so I would say that he is uh, representative of a growing wave of prominent house church leaders who feel like they need to lead by example. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, I, this is uh, super fascinating to me. And I, I'm wondering if, um, yeah, is there, I think that it's certainly the case that you detect sometimes a book comes straight out of someone's heart. And I think I could sense that with regard to this book. This is something that you're passionate about and that emerges from your cross-cultural missionary experience, your, your training as a Bible scholar, as those, as those kind of meet and interface. Um, do you have any specific experiences as a cross-cultural missionary that were that kind of gelled or crystallized, like, I really need to write this book, or that, that fed into it in some sort of deep way? Are there any experiences that you want to, stories that you want to share? Mm. Sure. Um, one of the first things that grabbed my attention about this topic was when I went to uh, China, I was learning the language. Uh, I, you, you learn quickly that the word for sin is crime. And I realized that was how it's translated, is crime. And so when you tell somebody, hey, you're a sinner, we're sinners, you're saying we're criminals. And that made absolute zero sense. Uh, and so typically people spend hours just talking about, are you a criminal? Or are you not a criminal? And I thought, if we can't get this right, then we're not going to get a whole lot of other things right. So that really pricked my mind. And I had been reading uh, at, at the time a lot of John Piper, and he talked about the glory of God uh, uh, being so important. And living in China, I thought, you know, this honor-shame culture seemed like it really could, they, they really need to be in conversation with this whole glory of God conversation. Because it always seemed like the glory of God conversation would be like, it didn't seem to really touch a lot of theological doctrines. It seemed to be, you talk about doctrine, 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 and then you just say, for the glory of God. It didn't seem like it really shaped at a tangible level uh, a lot of uh, people's thinking and exegesis. So that's spurred my thoughts uh, at an academic level and a missiological level. And at a personal level, I grew up in a, a very, very shame-laden uh, context and family with all kinds of issues and whatnot. I, get, I, I mentioned a little bit of that in the book. And so, like anything else, there was a sense of which I also wanted to explore. What, are the, what does the Bible say about honor and shame and these sorts of things? 
Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciated those sort of more personal dimensions of your book um, and how frank you were about um, some of, of your own background and experience um, with, with shame in family life. Um, yeah, and, and that's part of like, you know, the backdrop of the beauty of, of um, redemption and of um, regaining a sense of honor. Um, so maybe we should maybe we should move there next. Um, I, I think that it would be helpful for. Um, I think we all have a sense of uh, a general sense of what we mean by honor and shame. But I think that um, because those terms uh, they're on the one hand cross cultural, but they also function differently in Eastern and Western cultures. Um, I was wondering if you could do a little bit more to just uh, to be to be precise. What do we mean by honor? What do we mean by shame? And then maybe we'll move from there to to differences between the East and the West. Sure. Well, honor and shame, broadly speaking, refer to someone's perceived worth within some social or relational context. So it's inherently relational. uh, And you it's so therefore it's really tied to group identity. And so your honor or shame, your social status, your reputation is linked to the group you belong to. And so, uh, you, you know, let's say, for example, in politics, you, you, you're a member of one party, you might have a lot of standing, but then have no standing in another. Same thing with sports teams and so forth. So uh, if you think of, you know, junior high culture, uh, the military, American Southern culture, military culture. I mean, these are all honor shame cultures. The impression people have about honor shame is usually only half right. Uh, people will think of it's merely psychology, or they think, oh, this is a medieval concept, you know, or, or they think of honor killings. And these are all aspects of, of honor and shame, but they're just that they're half truths, and so um, that's 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 what I, I hope to bring into the book. When bringing into the book is a, a more robust understanding of how, about what honor shame is, and that it just is. It's not necessarily good or bad. It just is. And so, going okay, well, how does this affect who we are and what the Bible says? So obviously, there's a heightened um, sense of honor and shame in in some kinds of cultures, as you just mentioned, military culture or whatever it might be. Um, and also important differences between ascribed and achieved honor, as as you sort of lay out in the in the book, and and this functions a little bit differently in Eastern and Western culture. So, um, how about what what are some of the key differences that um, that we should be aware of? In Eastern cultures, you have far more sensitivity to ascribed honor, and by that I mean the type of honor or shame that one gets because of one's group identity, belonging, such as whether it be gender. Um, education status, title, you know, if you have the title of vice president of a company, that's going to give you some certain status. Uh, Western culture tends to be more sensitive to uh, achieve honor. Well, you know, so how I either uh, do well or fail, you know, whether it be uh, I made the honor roll or I won the race. And so there's a, a issue of differences. And so Eastern cultures tend to focus on how we're the same, and that's our fundamental identity, whereas Westerners tend to think of identity as how I'm distinct and different than everybody else. And the truth is, our identity is a bit of both. Uh, so all places are on the same cultures. The slight rules are different. The vocabulary is different. You know, most places don't use the, the exact language, honor, shame, you know, to describe everything I'm talking about. They may use you know, idea, reputation, name, you know, whatever else. 
Yeah. So kind of in our context, situations we might be familiar with would be like somebody who is like, I don't know, like the son of a governor. Like um, they have an, an ascribed honor that they haven't really earned it by achieving something themselves, but because they're the son of an important person, um, then they're going to have a certain kind of honor that attends that. Um, where um, that person may also have great achievements and maybe the governor has some of both. Maybe he achieved things to get to the position of being governor, but uh, at the same time, him, him holding the title is an ascribed honor that gives him even more prestige. Or if we translate to the academic world, there would be certain universities, right, that if you're a professor at, you know, uh, it's very prestigious compared to other professors, regardless of whether your achievements are any different. It's the, the title itself and being associated with a certain institution would carry an ascribed honor. Are those fair um, extensions? Precisely. Yes, that's precisely right. Okay. And, and so Eastern culture, you would say, is much more invested in general and ascribed honor. And with that, I would say is the issue of group identity. Uh, that's a huge deal. Most people don't realize that group identity and honor shame are two sides of the same coin, uh, and naturally so. And so Eastern cultures tend to be more sensitive to the needs and, and values of the group, whereas more individualistic cultures tend to be either less aware of it or are, are less concerned with the priorities of the group. So within that, as we think about how, like, for instance, shame functions, like if we were to just merely psychologize that and individualize it, that I feel a sense of shame, uh, then it's like, why well, we can reduce that to almost like just being embarrassed personally, right? Um, but within a collective society, like, um, shame functions a little bit differently. And you, you talked about, for instance, um, I, I don't remember if it was Korea, but you talked about suicides uh, and how suicide actually can be a way of like using shame to preserve honor. Um, what? How does that work? Yeah. So uh, honor and shame can be either moral or non-moral. It, like you said, it could be just mere embarrassment uh, or it could be something to a sense where like in Japanese culture where people want to vindicate their family's honor and as an expression of love, they might commit suicide as a way of saying that, uh, my, you know, I am either, I'm, I'm, I'm making recompense or I am truly, I'm, I'm showing that I, I, I want to distance myself from the family, that, that they uh, are, are good, you know, despite what I've been accused of. And so uh, you can think of, some people think of honor shame as merely pride, but if you think about, for example, I, I, one time I was really nervous at a speaking event when I'm really nervous when I speak, but I realized it was because I cared about my friend who'd invited me and I didn't want him to look bad in front of his, his friends. So uh, people, there, there's, there's a more robust sense of honor and shame at work than mere embarrassment. There's a moral dimension, a, 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 even a love dimension. Yeah. Because I think in, I mean, obviously, suicide is a, an enormous tragedy and, you know, we would never want to in any way, you know, su- support it or suggest its value. But within the context of an honor-shame culture, uh, it makes more sense, right? Because from a Western perspective, maybe uh, it would just be the greatest act of selfishness would be uh, suicide because you're, you're, you think of all the harm you caused to other people and the grief and, like, um, but but not so in an honor shame culture because it could be used to preserve the dignity of the larger family or social unit uh, in some way of restoring their honor by by saying that I'm removing the shame, um, something along those lines. 
Um, all right, well, let's, uh, as we kind of think about these these really important categories and we begin to move to the text of Romans, um, I think that uh, we have some language in Romans that, that really clearly resonates with honor-shame uh, culture uh, as we kind of think about Romans 1 and, and we would you know, talk about, um, you know, the wrath of God being revealed uh, from heaven against all the wickedness of men who suppress the truth, right? And, and, and we kind of move into that language uh, that they have dishonored God. Um, uh, in their in their idolatrous activities, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, right? But rather, they um, uh, that uh, they began to dishonor uh, their bodies among themselves, and so on and so so forth. Um, but there's other language I think that doesn't as clearly move in that valence, at least to my ears, um, that I think you helped me to attune myself to much much better. And that would be, for instance, language of glory. Um, whenever I hear about, about glory, right, I mean, I probably have a typical Western idea in mind of like, like what, what pops into my mind, like radiance and splendor and like light, right? I, and probably I might associate it in some way, like if I'm not thinking very carefully about new creation, I might be like moving quickly to ideas of heaven, right? Like, oh, like the, it's the splendor of heaven in some way, right? Um, uh, and I don't really think of it in, a, in, in, in the sense of an honor-shame kind of framework at all. Um, what happens whenever we, we we turn the Rubik's cube a little bit, right, and we begin to realize that glory is an honor shame word? How does it fit as an honor shame word? Um, well, it, it goes down to worth. You know, uh, again, you know, the the weight of something, uh, the uh, the honor, how how much uh, standing it has. And so, when we talk about God's glory, we can be talking about different aspects of that. We can talk about God's. Uh, um, value, you know, his infinite value, or, or the manifestation of his worth, um, uh, what makes him so good and worthwhile of praise, you know, what makes him praiseworthy. And just to, you know, to kind of show how the, the Bible is so flexible with this language, you even have in the writer of Hebrews who talks about uh, the fact that uh, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. You know, so if we don't think of houses having honor, uh, and then he, there you have glory of a builder. I mean, there, there's a lot of flexibility in this language, and when you realize that, uh, uh, then all of a sudden a lot of scripture opens up because just to glorify somebody is to honor them, to talk about their value and praise them. Yeah. So when it talks about us, um, you know, not honoring God or giving thanks to, to him, um, and uh, that we then, you know, as part of that, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. made. Like that's all, uh, the language all packages together in, in ways that we're, we maybe don't quickly recognize if we think of the word glory or doxa, right, as, as not, not if we don't connect it as intimately to reputation, right, as it's connected in um, clearly in, in Greek. And even when we know better, even if we memorized vocabulary at one point that, that connected glory to fame or reputation, um, right, it, it can be sometimes hard to mobilize that practically when we have certain kinds of images that dominate. Um, all right. Well, that's. Um, I, I think that was really helpful to me. Your whole discussion of glory and um, and moving that into an honor frame, uh, honor shame framework. Um, the, you, you had a really interesting macro proposal for how to um, read Romans better. That um, was was in, intriguing, and I think that's one of the strengths of your work. Is on the one hand, it's 
it, it has these huge kind of frameworks of, of um, kind of rethinking uh, culture and so- sociology, um, but at the same time, it's very exegetical. And one of your um, your intriguing uh, macro proposals had to do with a really close reading of um, the difference between Greek and Gentile and how this might connect to uh, Paul's indirect form of communication and that he's trying to maybe indirectly communicate something to certain audiences in Romans. Um, and, um, and, and so you're paying really careful attention to some of those categories. Let's start then with the idea of first, what do, we, what do we mean by that Paul might be engaged in an indirect form of communication? And why might this be a, a helpful way to think about how Romans works? Sure. Well, cultures that are very sensitive to honor and shame dynamics tend to be indirect in their communication style, uh, which makes a lot of sense because um, you don't want to be too, you know, too brash or, or, or you know, or, or insulting the people. Um, and, and people are more attuned to other people's feelings, emotions, and social dynamics. So uh, I think there's a bit of that in Romans where he is trying to motivate the Roman church to support his mission to the barbarians, which is not the, the nicest of terms, particularly if you're a Roman Greek. And so he knows they're not going to be all that excited to go to those backwards people, so to speak. And so part of his agenda is to motivate them. But how does he do that? I think he uses some indirect communication. And you know, I could keep going on, but... Um, of indirect communication? Or what, what, what do we mean more specifically when we talk about like an, an indirect form of communication? Can you use an analogy or an example that would help illuminate it? It's hard off the cuff, maybe, to think of one. Uh, uh, sure, it is. Uh, but maybe if, uh, if you are in marriage and maybe your wife uh, makes some kind of comment that you realize, even though she said that, like, oh, are you going to wear that today? You go, oh, wait a minute, I think that means I shouldn't wear that. Um, or, you know, you know, things of that nature. Or maybe you refer to some, you know, people in general. But really, you mean, you know, you, you know, some people say this, but you realize you clue in they go, I think he's talking about me. <laughs> yeah. The, the whole like asking for a friend. Thing exactly. On social media. <laughs> Precisely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, OK, uh, good. And so, um, yeah. How does this then um, what's the difference between like why, why should we pay attention to Paul says um, specifically that um, that, that it's um, He's under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, right? Uh, both to the wise and the foolish. And he doesn't just say Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Gentiles and to barbarians. Now, of course, he speaks about Gentiles frequently, right? But you 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 pay careful attention to the way in which he uses actually um, uh, the the term uh, Greeks there a number of times uh, in the text rather than Gentiles. Yeah, I found it so peculiar that Paul seemed to sporadically use the use or insert the word Greek in, in pairs, whether it be talking about the Jew and the Greek. Uh, but then he wouldn't use it for a long time. And then all of a sudden it pops up again in chapter 3, and then again in chapter 10. And I kept going, what in the world is going on? And I went to basically every commentary I could find, and nobody really made much of an argument they just said, oh, Greek and Gentile, they're just synonymous. And I thought, well, no, they're not. First off, Greek is a type of Gentile. Um, and then 
and then Paul clearly makes a distinction early on when he distinguishes Greek and barbarian. So that I just couldn't get that out of my mind. And so I started noticing how he started doing word groups. He'd be Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish. And then all of a sudden, Greek takes the second spot in uh, verse, uh, was it well, 16 or 17, uh, chapter 1. And then, and then, again, he reiterates it back to back in chapter 2, I think 9 and 10. Uh, and then obviously he goes into gen- Gentile, Gentile, Gentile. And then sporadically when he, they pop up, I said, well, what's going on here? Why would he bring this back? And I noticed that there was some universalizing happening in those passages, whether it be all, you know, have sent all, you know, are, have, are fallen away or whatnot. And then later on, all can be saved. Uh, they call the name of the Lord. Uh, and so I started to realize, wait a minute, he's trying to make some kind of point here. And when you look at the bigger picture of this whole Jew-Gentile discussion, I realized, wait a minute, he is a, a sl- a subtly moving them from their self-perceived honorific position of this culture Greek into re- reminding them that in you know salvation history, so to speak, that you're in the second slot. You're a, you're a, you're a mere Gentile. You're an outsider who's been brought in. And then... He can apply that back to go in the same way that you've been brought in as an outsider. Uh, rethink your position with regard to the barbarians, uh, these babblers, and basically don't play the role of, of you know G- Paul's Jewish opponents who might be kind of exclusivistic, uh, but basically learn from this what God has done in history, and so that we can apply it to the work to Paul's mission. Yeah. yeah, that's really helpful because I think that we are so used to ideas of like kind of cross valuing cross cultural, valuing other ethnicities, valuing um, and, and maybe elevating them even right as we're in a culture that values diversity so very very much. Um, that it can be easy to slide right past the ways in which in the ancient world there might have been a snobbery around such things, um, and how Paul's deconstructing that. So uh, it was very helpful. Um, yeah, and uh, how about uh, just to change pace here, um, one of the things we like to do on, on, on script is we do some speed rounds, um, and the speed rounds are just shorter um, bursts of questions um, that oftentimes have, um, yeah, they're just silly, um, some a little more serious, but mostly just, mostly just fun um, as a way of getting to know you better and just, uh, yeah, uh, just, just to goof around here. So you ready? I'm the first ready. Speed round? I'm ready. Okay. All right. What's the best, what's the best thing about spring break? Oh, um, oh, I gotta do quick. Um, the kids are happy cause they're out of school. All right. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's a big one for us too around our household is, uh, there's a lot of joy. All right. Here's, here's another one. If an ant is walking on a pie crust and falls through, is it panicked or overjoyed? Overjoyed. Yeah, probably so. There's a lot of goodness in there. But hey, when it's in free fall, who knows, you know. Unless, okay, it's, if, unless it's pineapple pizza, then nobody's overjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> if, if your mother walked into your office right now, uh, what would she say about its level of tidiness? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you working on? So she wouldn't appreciate the level of tidiness. Not I can see your office right now. But. Not at the moment because I'm working on a book, so I have books all over in piles. Yeah. 
I've got a, a facade of neatness in one corner of the office, but the rest of it's got stacks that don't look good. All right, so I uh, react to this word. How does this word make you feel? Sticky. Ew. Yuck. Yeah. Okay, don't like it. Uh, give me a book or author outside of the Bible or theology that you think is worth reading. Jacko Willink. Oh, I don't know this. Who's, who's who's this? He's a Navy SEAL who's written books like Extreme Ownership and uh, uh, Dichotomy of Leadership, and especially Extreme Ownership. Uh, he he was the commander of the most decorated you know unit in the Iraq War, and he has some really substantial things to say about uh, taking ownership and leadership. Name again? Jocko Willink. Jocko Willink. Okay. Uh, have you ever driven a motorcycle? Yes. Did you like it? I love it, and I would love to get one here. All right. Uh, okay, so back back to some more substantive questions. Um, and here, I think we're kind of moving into how you mobilize some of these ideas in Romans 1, uh, and then we'll maybe circle back, talk about Romans 2 a bit too, and then move that into uh, Romans chapter 3. But let's begin with this question. Um, uh, so how does our sin, especially our idolatry in Romans 1, um, how does that cause God to lose face? I mean, we oftentimes think of sin as being our problem, right? That's, that's the, the black mark against us. In what sense is it a black mark against God? Mm. Well, you use the, exactly the right term, to lose face. And some people take offense to that. But uh, to lose face is not to say that God's somehow embarrassed and needs to lay on the counselor's couch to work through his emotions. It's the idea is that We've uh, brought reproach upon his name. Uh, we've um, basically made him seem less glorious than he is. And so some people take offense like, oh, God is inherently glorious. He can't lose face or be shameful. It, it's the same kind of language as when we say we give God glory. We're not saying, oh, that if I don't give him glory, he's less glorious. No, it's saying, it's talking about expression of, of, of some sentiment of value. So... We, our sin makes God lose face by dishonoring him, making him seem like he has little worth. And so one of the things that I like to point out is uh, in Romans 1, Paul alludes to Jeremiah 2, where the nation, he says, you know, has a nation changed its gods, even though they have no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And clearly the idea is, the source, the grounding of their glory is their God. And when you dishonor God, you're, you're saying, you know, he, he's, not, he's not worthwhile. And I'm going to put my, my fate, my hope, uh, my identity, every, my sense of worth in something else. Yeah, so there's sort of an objective and a subjective dimension on sort of like on the objective end, like God can't be defaced in that kind of way. But like there is a um, would that be correct or remain? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Honor and shame and glory, whatnot, has an objective and subjective dimension. And so I make no claim about the ontology of God and that He's less honorable, less glorious, whatnot. But it's all about recognition. Uh, of who he is, uh, uh, giving him proper value and praise. Yeah, so the, the, the God is less esteemed in our own midst and also in the midst of the nations who might might be observing or the outsiders, right, whenever whenever we sin. Which is why um, the Roman, which is why the Romans 2, 23 and 24 verses are such a huge deal to me uh, because it lays it out so clearly that the main verb there is uh, when it talks about people's problem is dishonoring God and the 
by breaking the law is a prepositional phrase. Whereas so many people tend to get those around, those turned around, and they think that the breaking of the law is the primary idea behind sin. When it's really about uh, are you honoring or not honoring God? Yeah, so I'm sorry, I missed it when you said what verse you were speaking about there. Romans 2, 23 and 24. Ah, okay, 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 yeah. I think I was in the wrong spot as I was trying to track with you there. Okay, yeah, I see where you're talking about now. Yeah, no, that's that's very helpful. Um, so as we move from there then and we talk about, okay, on the one hand, sin is not something that's just like is a black mark against me, but it's also something that causes God to lose face. Um, the, the key question becomes, how does Jesus restore God's face then? How does he restore um how does he restore the honor of the whole situation? Um, and that's ob- obviously there's a lot to unpack um, within that. So I'll let you begin unpacking that however you wish. And then maybe I'll have a follow-up question. Sure. Well, and the key thing to remember here, I think, for people is that one question can have multiple right answers. You know, so if you ask, why are you eating? You know, I could say, well, I have time or I made a paycheck or my wife made this for me. These are all legitimate answers. And the same thing for this. How is it that Jesus vindicates God's honor, uh, saves God's face, so to speak? Uh, I think we have to approach that the way Paul does, particularly at the beginning of chapter 3, where the Paul's opponent basically says, hey, if you're right about all these things you've been saying in Romans 2, it seems like God is not faithful. It seems that like he's not righteous. And I think that the whole context of God and his relation to his people and whether or not God keeps his promises needs to frame Paul's answer thereafter. Because immediately Paul alludes to Psalm 51 and talk speaks of God being declared righteous and then eventually closes out the chapter about God's righteousness being manifest, uh, culminating in this whole idea of, therefore, God is both the God of the Gentiles and the Jews. So, in short, because Christ died, God is able to keep his promise made to Abraham, which he's going to get into in chapter 4, um, to be so that, to where, that through Abraham's offspring, all nations will be blessed. If God, if Christ does not die and, um, and atone for sin, then God could not keep his promise. He'd be a liar, essentially. He would not be able to keep his promise. Uh, and I think that's, broadly speaking, what Paul is getting at. Now, there are other dynamics certainly there, but I think that's the major thread of the argument. Yeah, so that God, so that it's, it's a demonstration of God's righteousness uh, in the sense of, of um, showing that God is a just judge. So, I mean, would you, um, like, you know, uh, classically that's been connected at least to God as a just judge, but you want to move that in more into honor-shame categories, right? Uh, how do we do that? I'm not saying those things are antithetical, um, but, but am I right in saying that that's the, the, the direction you would want to move things? Yeah, and I would not I would not make it as an either-or, but rather than just thinking of judge, think of a king. Um, because a king is a judge, but a judge is not necessarily a king. And so part of the honor and, and rightness of, of a king is to establish, is to keep his promises, is to establish what is right. And that means vindicating, rescuing his people, and also uh, condemning their enemies, defeating their enemies. And Romans has uh, all of those elements, whether it be him defeating sin, but also in his keeping his promises to Abraham and rescuing his people and making them slaves of righteousness. 
So it's, it's all there. And, uh, and so what Paul wants to do is to say, he wants to vindicate the honor of God. Uh, and how does he do that? He does it through Christ, who perfectly honors the Father. Yeah, that's that's well put. Um, here, I'm, I'm reading from your page 74. This was, I thought, a nice summation of some of the things you were getting at there. Um, you say this, you say, Christ saves God's face. Because of the cross, all nations will see God's glory. Fundamentally, atonement is a God-centered act. Jesus dies for God. And so I think that sometimes we might prioritize Jesus' death for our sins um, in some ways. You want to say that, well, it is for our sins, but it's also for God, uh, who through him keeps his covenant promises and enacts righteousness in creation. This plan is revealed in the law and the prophets. Um, and I, I think that gets a, a, maybe a, something at the dynamic you're trying to, to get at in, in the sense that Jesus is uh, the one who um, saves God's face through his righteousness establishing activities. Absolutely. And I think that, that gets missed way too much, that there is a, a theodicy element to Romans that uh, gets pushed to the side far too often. But right at the crux, you know, this pivot between two and three, Paul is squarely making this about whether or not God is righteous, whether he is faithful. And I think that that sometimes gets pushed under the rug uh, because of other debates. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll, you'll indulge uh, um, an anecdote here um, from my own personal life, as I think it's relevant, and it, I'm hoping you can actually help me. Uh, but when I was teaching earlier this year at a church in Baton Rouge, uh, I was teaching on the topic of the Trinity, and um, we were discussing Romans 15.3, in which, uh, just to remind you, Paul quotes Psalm 69. It's that the insults of those who have insulted you fell upon me passage. Uh, the insults of those who have insulted you fell upon me. And in some of my own work on this, on, and kind of looking at um, Trinity, I've argued that Paul uses a very specific mode of interpretation um, uh, called prosopological exegesis. So he identifies Christ as the speaker. Anyway, all this is just the context for saying, like, I had argued that you could paraphrase that. Uh, the insults of those who insulted you, O God the Father, when, when I was being crucified, that this is a, Jesus is sort of referring back to his own crucifixion. The insults of those who insulted you, O God the Father, when I was being crucified, they, they fell upon me, your son. Um, and I'd asserted that as part of my teaching, that this might be a helpful way of thinking about some Trinitarian interdynamics and arguing that, that the son dies on behalf of the father, that, he's, that part of his motivation is to shield the father from the insults that were aimed at the father. Right, that's part of the reason the son died, so the son's death is not just for our sins. But then afterwards, I got a question from the floor, and uh, I don't remember the question exactly, but the gist of it was something along the lines of, "Surely God doesn't need anything, right? Um, the the father doesn't need the son to in any way protect him from insults, right? So what would be the utility of that?" And I kind of fumbled through my answer, right? I was kind of like, I'm t- talking to my beard, you know, trying to, um, trying to, to, well, you know, it, it was a good question. And um, it was one that I, I think if I had more time, I probably would have been, uh, I hope, um, had a better answer even then. Uh, but I think in light of reading your book, I at least should have um, some better answers. Um, yeah. I, how would you nuance, I'm just curious, how would you nuance that if you were to say, like, what is the utility of the of the son dying for the father then, or bearing the insult, if indeed the insults were aimed at the father and Christ bore them, and that's part of the point of the passage, which, you know, even that might may be contentious. Um, you know, what, how would you nuance some of that? I mean, can you help me out? Sure. Well, part of it, you know, God wants to manifest his glory and wants to be honored and show his worth to people. That's, you know, that's loving to people. Well, one of the ways that you honor or glorify somebody is by what you are willing to suffer for. 
you know, what you're willing to die for, what you're willing to work for, um, who you stand with when there are opposing camps. And so uh, in some sense, uh, that is uh, an absolute perfect way in which uh, to glorify God because of the contrast, because of the foil of it and the ultimate commitment of it. I mean, what you're willing to, to experience pain over says a whole lot about what you value. And that theme about, uh, you know, bearing the, you know, or taking shame, you know, the insults that go to him or go to me, uh, that sort of motif is actually uh, in various places. Uh, In fact, in Psalm 69, which you were quoting, just a couple of verses before the one that Paul quotes, uh, the writer says, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach and that dishonor has covered my face. And that's and that's several places, and that's and Paul uses that text as a model for us in Romans to go. This is what it means to bear the burdens of our brothers, you know, because he says he talks about bearing with the weakness, uh, of, you know, of the weak, and and then he immediately quotes that, and so it, it becomes a model for us to realize what it means to bear with one of those burdens and to be a community. Um. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a, a question that I, I hope just kind of continues the momentum here of, of our discussion around um, you know kind of justification language righteousness language um, and uh, and as you move into chapter four in the book or chapter four of Romans I don't remember what chapter it is in your book um, uh, you begin to deal with of course the case of Abraham and one of the things you really want to stress is that this chapter is more about um, who is justified than how justification happens. And that we've tended to get that wrong. We've tended to think that this chapter is really trying to teach us how justification happens and how does it happen. It happens by pistis, right? And you're wanting to say that, well, it's not that that's not true. It's just that that's not really Paul's main point. Um, yeah. Can, can you can you elaborate on that? Oh, absolutely. When I was doing a lot of my dissertation research, I was dive, did a deep dive into the new perspective on Paul, old perspective on Paul debate and whatnot. And I kept getting confused. Why are these people talking past each other? Because I honestly don't see uh, the contradiction in countless places. Because to me, it was a matter of emphasis and which text you're talking about. Romans 4 being one of them. That yes, you can get a lot of the how is one justified in Romans 4, no question. But uh, it's not a matter of one side must be right and the other side must be wrong. I think we do that too often in theological discussions, who's right, who's wrong. It might be a matter that we're both right, but uh, one of us might have, the point might be primary versus secondary in this text or that text or the other text. And so for me, when I started looking through the logic of the argument that it was the who is, can be justified was Paul's primary concern. And the way in which he makes the argument is to discuss how people are justified. You know, one it lives one lives off the other. You know, one part of the argument lives off the other. Uh, and I think that's an important distinction that can help build a bridge or find a middle way. You know, Chinese philosophy oftentimes says, let's find the middle way. And I think Western theologians could really learn a lesson from there is to figure out what is a middle way. It doesn't mean exactly in the middle, but there's probably some truth to both. And let's res- respect the other side to figure out where that can inform my view. So um, the answer to the who is justified, obviously, is um, is connected to the identity of, of Abraham and to those who are, uh, you know, um, uh, the bi- bipistis, you know, the, the ekpistos uh, with regard to Abraham. Um 
you you connect this, and I thought in a really helpful and thoughtful way to um, to the question of works, and say that in the at the end, the problem with justification by works is that they dishonor God. Um, how is it that justification by works? How does that bring dishonor on God? Well, uh, the the whole issue you know you go in a few different directions on that. Um, but the issue is that, you know, we talk, think about Charles, uh, John Barclay's issue of uh, work on grace. You know, in one respect, uh, God gives grace apart from worth. And so when we are trying to somehow prove our worth, demonstrate our worth by works, um, then it's somehow uh, belittling uh, his, you know, his, 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 his grace. And so there, there is that element. But on the other hand, and this is kind of more where I go in the book, is that if people are justified by works, then the only people who could be justified would be uh, Israel, those who belong to Israel. And if that were the case, then God could not keep his promise. He could not be righteous uh, to his covenant promises. Um, and so therefore, it's essential that People are not uh, justified by the works of the law because I read works of law not in this broad general sense, but specifically the works of the Mosaic law. And so, uh, to, and so, essentially, those who were advocating a justification by works of the law were not believing the very promises given to Abraham, who they were espousing as their father. Yeah, and it seems like as part of that, the part of the dishonor that's brought on God then um, uh, would be that God does not become, and Jesus does not become the universal king, right? There, it's like a, a it's a, a, it bifurcates like God's sovereignty and locates it on um, just a narrow people of God, um, Israel, rather than on his worldwide kingship. And so that actually causes God to lose face, right? If God is only the king over a small sect, of people, then he's not um, as marvelous as if he's king over everyone. Yes, thank you for high, thank you for high, thank you for highlighting that. That's a key thing I I forgot to mention. Well, you said it. <laughs> I'm just, uh, <laughs> well, I'm just what real. I mean is, what I mean is, you know, there's a few different ways I answered that question in the book, but that was one of the things I forgot to mention that I, I'm so glad you reminded me of. Is I helps tie it down for people. Is that essentially? If we start making justification by works of law or any other kind of cultural you know, attributes, then we effectively say, kind of like Paul's Jewish opponents, God is really only the God of my tribe. And, and uh, that diminishes his glory as the creator king. Uh, Jesus is mainly king over us. And so, yes, thank you for highlighting that because that's a key point that I just forgot to mention when I was talking yeah, yeah. Well, it also connects intimately, obviously, to um, the gospel's royal emphasis, which which obviously you're keen on in the book. Is your your book is obviously full of, um, you know, the gospel is Jesus is King, and we need to give allegiance or loyalty uh, language to him, which obviously warms my heart. Uh, so, so I I I, you're, you're, I was a big fan of uh, of all that kind of language. Um, let's do another speed round, and uh, time's flying by here, so we're going to probably have to move toward wrapping up after that, although I have uh, lots of questions left on the table I was still hoping to get to. Uh, but let's, uh, let, me, let me jump to a second speed round here. Um, I've got to find it, though, um, as uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I skipped my first one, and I have to go back to find it. So let me see it, if I've got it in here. 
I could always just make up speed round questions on the spot. That, that might be even more interesting. I had a friend yesterday who knew that we were going to talk today, and he put me through a speed round in preparation because uh -huh. <laughs> he goes, you know he's going to ask you this question. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Um, yeah, in my printout, though, like looks like I deleted my second speed round, so I'm not sure where it is. So I, I am going to have to make them up. Um, so, um, but, but that's okay. We'll do it. Um, I'll do some of the ones that I like to do with other people that I haven't asked you yet. So, um, here's one of my favorites. Uh, what's something that embarrasses you? And it's good for an honor shame conversation. Oh, anything that has to do with, uh, passing gas or bathroom humor. I don't like bathroom humor at all. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're publicly owning it. That was probably, <laughs> that was probably shameful even to... Even to mention such it, things, it was right? very—it was very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yep. To mention those things, people do in secret, right? It's shameful. Um, okay. Uh, uh, how about uh, is there uh, any intelligent life uh, anywhere else in the universe? Yes. Yes. Ooh. Do you believe in ghosts? Mm, no. Very reluctantly, no. Because I think I believe in like you know demons, spirits, and if that counts as ghosts, then yes. But yeah, not. I didn't. A yeah, I didn't ask if you believe in in yeah in, in supernatural entities apart apart from you know um, yeah ghosts is a little more specific. Okay. Um, how about uh, do you um, do you prefer to uh, 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 hike or to uh, to spend some time on the ocean beach? Hike for sure. All right, you, you've won my heart again. I'm definitely, <laughs> uh, definitely a hiker. Okay, we always ask. Um, we always ask, ask this one. Uh, what's the What's the most important book in biblical studies, in your opinion, of the last fifty years? John Barclay's Paul and the Gift. Oh wow! Uh, I I would say that out of, uh, ever since that book's been published, I bet you half of our uh, half of our guests have said that. I, I would say. Um, which is a real testament to the quality of Barclay's book, and that—that's—I would have a hard time saying that it's not. It's gonna—it's—it's it's gonna be so disruptive, I think, to in a good way to ongoing conversations about soteriology. It was the disruption we all needed. So, um, oh, that's wonderful. Okay, well, let's um, let's jump back into some other questions, and as we as we begin to wrap things up. Well, I, I, I can't leave this one aside, although we, um, it's, it's not truly a wrap-up question, but um, I really enjoyed the Romans 7 chapter, um, which, which had to do especially with positioning the I um, of Romans 7, who's the speaker. And on the one hand, you have some proposals for that that probably aren't horribly different than other people's proposals. I think you, you, you argue it's collective Israel during the Exodus experience um, rather than an individual um, but the part that intrigued me more was that you you, you said that Romans 7 offers a, a much more optimistic view of humanity um, than is often assumed. And you kind of walked a middle road between, on the one hand, like Western ideas tend to be very pessimistic, especially if they're infused by theology. Like, I'm, I'm just but a depraved worm, right? What, what good could I ever do, uh, right? And that uh, Eastern ideas tend to be much more positive about, um, about human nature and about human fundamental human goodness. And it seemed like you wanted to say, well, the truth seems like we're, we're in the middle here with, um, with Romans 7, but especially as you're pressing back on the Western idea uh, that tends to move in orbs of total depravity um, or, or helplessness or fundamental human evil, right? Um, you wanted to press back against that. Um, yeah, uh, could, you, could you explain a little bit more why and how? Sure. Well, uh, and I'll say I, my first draft that I submitted to the publisher uh, did not include anything about Romans 7 because I basically chickened out. 
and, uh, and thought, oh man, there's way too much work I'm gonna have to do for Roma 7, and, and I don't wanna dive into that. So I'm so glad the publisher, Dan Reed, was my editor at the time, he pushed back on me to do that. But I, as I looked at Roman 7, I kept thinking, this seems like this, is, this book, this chapter is used as a weapon to shame people more than anything else. And then it's used for this idea of total depravity in whatever form someone means by that. And I thought, you know, it's just, when you actually look at the language behind it, the Greek language, it, it just, some, there's a whole lot not fitting here. And so, and so that was a lot of the motivation for me to understand uh, the chapter and its proper usage. It also is the one chapter that people, if, if they ever are mindful of collective identity, it's everywhere else but not Romans 7. And I thought, that's just odd that we get so individualistic in that one chapter. So, uh, and of course, my background in China was another influence because there's always this tension between, are we born good or are we born evil? I mean, that's such a common conversation for those in China. And I realized, you know, people are really talking past each other because essentially when, say, Confucian thinking says, hey, we're born good, they're not saying that we're born perfect and whatnot. They're simply saying that people have the potential for good and that, you know, good things can come from humanity. <laughs> well, Christians believe that because Christians believe that people are made in the image of God and, uh, and they have a calling from God to display God's character. And so uh, it's, it, it's not... It's not, again, not this complete either or. And I, when I look back at Romans 7, I found that really fleshed itself out uh, in some really interesting ways. Yeah, um, I, I think that one of the things that grabbed my attention in the chapter was you talked about the degree to which the I is a victim of sin, right? And that, um, and that uh, yeah, that a lot of, of the culpability gets passed along to sin personified, right? As it's... Um, as it's doing its business over against the eye that um, that really seems like it's helpless um, in in the in the pressure of sin, um, so yeah, that, that that grabbed me. And what I expect people to do mistakenly who might hear that is to think I'm just excusing people for sin and we have no culpability, and that's not the point at all. The point is that in this text, what is Paul doing? Uh, and 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 I think sometimes we so emphasize human culpability and sin that we forget that the Bible does present us as victims as well. Yeah. Yeah, you were very balanced, I think. And if, if someone actually, I'm glad you clarified, because I think you're right, this, the impression of this interview could leave a misimpression. Um, but I, I think you capture that nuance quite well. Um, so thank you for that. Jackson also blogs frequently or posts frequently at jacksonwoo.org, uh, so you can catch him there. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Today's guest has been Jackson W., author of Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, Honor and Shame, and Paul's Message and Mission, published with InterVarsity Press Academic in 2019. Folks, this book will push you into new territory with regard to both exegetical detail and frameworks of meaning-making. You got to get it. It's highly recommended. There are links to the book on our website, www.onscript.study. Thanks, Jackson, and thanks to all our listeners. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate. 